Turundusraadio. Hello dear listeners and welcome to our marketing radio talk show number 64. My name is Anu Malnaritz and I'm your host today from Marketing Institute. And my co-host today is Raul Kalev who is a PR manager. Hello to everybody. And our guest uh, via Skype is uh, Eric Edmonds, who is coach and business mentor. Hi guys, great to be here. And our main topic today is about inception marketing. To introduce the topic, I would say that marketeers are often confused by different complex theories about what to do and how to do. But um, we do know that it does not need to be complex. You, Eric, have been creating a concept of inception marketing where you provide that it's easy to get results by following some logical steps. And my first question is, can you explain what is the inception marketing? Sure. The, the basic principle of inception marketing is um, to create marketing campaigns that give the buyers the realization that they would like to buy or, or, or to buy a product or service and have them arrive at that realization with the feeling that it was their own idea. You know, very often these days, marketing and selling is designed as a pushing activity. It's like pushing, convincing, influencing, persuading. And inception marketing is really designed around a model that l- allows the consumer to come to the realization they want to buy something and then feel like it was that they arrived there and it was their own idea. How do you do it? Or how do you think it should be done? Well, so there's a couple of core steps uh, um, involved in using inception marketing. And, and one of them, um, you know, one of the key aspects of it is that it's really a much more strategic marketing methodology than most marketing. You know, these days, a company wants to design a new brochure or a website or an ad for a magazine or a radio advertisement or what have you. They're usually sitting thinking, well, you know, how do we sell our product or service better? What could we say about our things better? And they're really thinking largely about themselves and not so much about their market. And so one of the big differences with inception marketing is that the marketing is very strategic in the sense that it involves knowing the market very well. It involves knowing, for example, who specifically it is that you're trying to market to in a given moment. Um, Here's a good example. If you can imagine, you know, all the guests on your show, we divide them up into two groups. And we ask the one group to create a marketing campaign that appeals to every single person in Estonia, every age, every, every, you know, uh, every political affiliation, every religion every socioeconomic group. And then we just give the other half a different assignment. And their assignment is to come up with an advertising campaign for one person. One person who's a mid-level manager at a manufacturing company, has three children, enjoys cross-country skiing and nature conservation. Well, obviously the second group has a much easier job because they can really get a sense of who it is they're marketing to. And as a result, what kind of marketing will appeal to them Um, and you can, so you can see already that the thought process is not all about my product or my service. The product, the, the process begins with who is it, whom is it that I'm wanting to connect with, whom is it that I'm trying to attract. Can you tell what has been so? Um, what what is the most challenging for the companies when you when you tell? It's it's a kind of easy concept. You have to know your customer. You have to step in the customer's shoes. Why don't they do it? Or what is the difficult part of it? Well, you know, there, there's a couple of things. Um, you know, first of all, there's a fundamental challenge with marketing these days, and that is that there's just so much of it. 
you know, that we're constantly being bombarded with advertisements and marketing campaigns and sales pitches and special offers and so forth. And there are just, I mean, it's just everywhere. In fact, it, these days, it's not just simply that you have to attract or win the attention of your prospects. It's that you have to steal their attention from something else because there's just so much distraction available in the world these days. So that's the first problem. And, and then another challenge is I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's this sort of idea that you can catch a monkey by, by putting food in a, in a glass jar. And when they put their hand into the jar and they, put their, their, they, they close their fist around the food, now they can't pull their hand out. And now they become trapped because they're not willing to let go of the food. If they let go of the food, they could pull their hand out, but then they wouldn't have the food. So they feel <laughs> trapped. Well, I think that's what's happening many times with customers with their marketing is that most companies are designing their advertisements and their marketing to appeal to active buyers. They're, 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 they're marketing to people who are already interested in buying, and everybody is marketing to those people. And so it's not a very good market to market to because, frankly, it's very competitive. Everybody's trying to get their fair share. But at the same time, because when a sale happens, it's really easy because the person is already shopping – it's, it's like the monkey with the fruit in the jar. We have our hands grasp around this easy target. And we, because we won't let go of it, we're not allowing ourselves to see the much bigger, wide open ocean of uncontested possibility. What should we do to understand about the uncontested possibilities? Well, like I said, one of the first things is, is that we stop thinking about our product or service. I mean, if you think about it, if your whole marketing is about your product or service, then all you're doing is designing marketing that might appeal to people who are already looking for your product or service. And so instead, we design marketing campaigns now that at their very core appeal to the, the wider market. They appeal to the wider market. And in, in other words, one of the things we stop doing is talking about our product or service all the time and we start talking about what's interesting to the wide open ocean of possibility. We start talking to the, 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 even the people who right now are, are not interested or, or, or not thinking about our product. We find a way to appeal to them and engage a conversation with them that will then move them to the realization they want our product or service. And again, they arrive there thinking it's their own idea. It seems to me that it's not just uh, strategic, as you, as you're told, but it's very, very expensive way of doing marketing. You know, what's really fascinating is that it might sound that way because it requires a lot more thinking. The truth is that it's much less expensive on a per sale or a per prospect basis. I'll give you an example. We develop strategically with our clients uh, something that we call an engagement pitch. So this is the, the, the initial... Uh, you know, headline or attention-grabbing email or landing page headline or the first few sentences of a radio advertisement. It's the first thing that's designed to catch their attention. Now, most people are doing that by talking about their own product or service. So I'd like you to imagine that you go to a networking event and, and there's a thousand people at that networking event and you have the opportunity to meet all thousand of those people. Well, if you, the first thing that comes out of your mouth every time you meet these people is all about you, You're not going to connect with very many people. And that's the mistake people make not only in their marketing but also in their personal life and in their networking life is that they just walk around talking about themselves all the time. 
when we use a different type of engagement, when we use engagement that is appealing to a broad audience, instead of a thousand, you know, now if you walk around, you know, just talking about your product or service, then the only people you're going to connect with are people interested in your product or service. So that's like less than 10% of all the people in the networking event. So maybe you have 100 prospects by the time you're done. Whereas somebody who has a more strategically designed engagement pitch that's designed to create conversation, not to sell something, might have 1,000 prospects to talk to at the end of that networking event. And so that's much less expensive on a per prospect basis because you could literally be talking to 5, 10, or 20 times as many people. And so what are you talking about? Because sometimes we all know that uh, you have to be very efficient, you have to be uh, targeting very uh, concrete things uh, in your uh, talk, uh, everything that is taught to us. So what do you do differently? Well, let me give you a, a tangible example um, that I used in my talk when I was in, uh, when I was in uh, Estonia a couple of months ago. Um, uh, the example I use is imagine that, and this, this comes from a friend of mine who actually is running a wedding photography company. Now, now, I would like you to imagine that he has a room full of people that might be clients. They might get married one day. They're thinking about getting married. They're all at different cycles of, of wedding planning, but they all might one day want to hire a wedding photographer. Now, if he stands up in front of that room of people and he says, I'm going to talk about world-class wedding photography, then how many of the people will stay? Well, the answer is really fairly easy. Only the people that are right now actively interested in wedding photography. Nobody else stays for this talk. Now, on the other hand, if I do some evaluation and I decide that, well, hang on a second now. I already know that, that, that um, when, when a woman, when, when, when people are getting married, that it's generally the bride. It's most often the bride that's out there looking for the photographer. And, 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 and if I give some thought to the way a woman thinks of the marriage, uh, a wedding, by the way, do you think that men and women think about a wedding day the same way? No. No, they don't. Or do they? No. No, not at all. <laughs> they, they, they think of it very differently. And, and it's really interesting because some countries don't, don't like to acknowledge that there's differences between men and women. But I, I always ask this question of the audience. I say, I ask all the women, I say, how many of you or how old were you the first time you thought about getting married, the first time you visualized yourself walking down the aisle? And you know, what, what answers do I usually get? Four, five, six, seven, 10, 12 years old. Then I go, men, how old were you the first time you thought about getting married or visualize yourself walking down the aisle? Guess what? Not yet. Many of them never have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just a different psychology. And so now that I know that psychology, I think about this now. If I know that, this, that a woman has potentially been thinking about her wedding day since she was 12, then that tells me some things about her. For example, it tells me that this day is very important to her. Do you, do you figure that's true? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So now, instead of saying, I'm going to talk to you about world-class wedding photography, I say to my thousand women in the audience, I say, you know what? There are seven mistakes that brides make that they regret within one week of their wedding, and I'm going to teach you how to avoid those mistakes right now. How many people stay? Half, at least. Yeah, maybe, may, at least, if not all of them. But if I say I'm going to talk about world-class wedding photography, it's like 10%. Well, even if you're right, if it's only half and it's not all of them, if it's 1,000 people, I'm, it's the difference between talking to 500 people or 100 people. 
And that's what being strategic is about. That's what understanding the psychology of your market is about, is coming up with pitches that are engaging to their value system. But Eric, how do you dig in into people's psychology, into people's mind? Well, there's a variety of ways to do that. I mean, it, and it depends a great deal on your industry or, you know, an individual industry. But the short version is this. What is important to them? That, that's really what you want to know. What's most important to them about their life, about their business, about their job? What's most important to them? And when you can identify what's most important to them, then you have some sense of their values. And at that stage, it becomes a lot uh, more, it becomes much more straightforward to engage them. Is it enough to ask? Or should you use your time even, I don't know, trying to spend some time together with them in order to really understand in depth what is important? It really depends on how strategic you want to be and how big the market potential is and how much budget your individual company has. Um, you know, for example, one of the problems with just asking is that quite often they don't know. Um, I, this is going to sound a little bit sexist, but quite often when we ask women what they want, they don't really give us exactly the right answer. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but every I know day, that every day, <laughs> every now and again, not I might me. Ask, <laughs> you know, every now and again, I might, for example, ask my wife what's wrong, and she might say nothing. Well, if I believe her, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, 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 so sometimes asking the market isn't really good enough. For example, I will often ask women. When I, I've said to them, how old were you when you first thought about getting married? And, and they, you know, four, five, six, 10, 12 years old. Then I go, okay, so what is most important to you about that day? And they say, well, uh, the dress, the flowers, the music. And they all have these different answers. When I can tell you in one, in one word what they want from that day. And they don't know that word until I say it. And then when I say it, they know it. And the word is perfection. That's what they want that day is perfection. Now, they don't really know that. Because they, they think of all the details that go into creating perfection. And so simply asking your customers or asking your market what's important to them won't always be good enough. Sometimes it involves really developing what we call a, a strong sense of corporate empathy, where you really have to imagine what life is like in their shoes and really dig in. Okay, so you, you actually, part of the things is that you, you go to the customers, you get the information, and on the other side, you try to bring it to, to the more strategic level, try, trying to generalize and find out what is the common word for the group. Yeah, very much that, very much like that. And of course, the tighter you can make the group, the better. So one of the challenges or mistakes that we're often making is, you know, we try to try to design advertising or marketing campaigns that appeal to everybody that we'd like to sell to. Well, yeah, that's just not going to work. Like it isn't going to work anymore. So instead, what we have to do is subdivide our whole market into smaller sub-markets and then create campaigns that work specifically for those markets. We also usually face the problem here in Estonia. All the market marketeers, marketing managers telling that, hey guys, the market is just 1.3 million here, or, or Estonian population is just 1.3 million altogether with the newborns and, and the people who are, who are more than 100 years old. So if we try to and and they tell us that if we try to divide the market into sometimes uh, some type of segments then it's too small anyhow to to do any marketing for them so that's why we try to target all of the estonian people what is wrong with this assumption where we that's, are stupid that's, that's the exact same thing as the monkey getting trapped by the jar It's a, you're looking at this number and saying, well, there's only 1.3 million, and so I have to hold on to all 1.3 million, and your hand is going to get stuck in the jar. 
If you really want to do things properly, you break them down into sub-target groups. I mean, here's the thing. You can create a campaign that might appeal to one-tenth of one percent of the population if you're really lucky, if you're really good at your marketing. Wait a minute. On the other hand, what if you found out there was 100,000 people that were exactly your target market and you figured out a way to reach half of them? That's a bigger number. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, when I look at some research and, and try to convince the companies looking that, okay, you tell that you are targeting all the Estonians, and then finally we see here that you have 25,000 customers. So what's the meaning of targeting every one of them when you still can reach only about 20 to 30,000? That is a really kind of a small niche, but probably somehow there is something connecting them why they are your loyal customers. I'm not sure I understand the question. Okay, it was just a comment, not a question. Oh, I see. No, no, no. But I think, I, no, I understand. I, I, and I think you're right that, that when we really are talking about values alignment as best we can. Is, is, and and, and uh, the, the, the more you understand the values of your individual target markets, the, the easier it is to create the right products for them, the right services for them, and of course, the right marketing for them. But now I turn around the questions and ask, okay, when we talk about Estonia, we have rather small companies here. Um, what should the big companies do? Is there something different when you are multinational, uh, having offices in 200 uh, different markets? Do you have to be different in every market? Or do you think that the kind of the, if, if you take even the wedding photography example, is this the same in different cultures, in different countries, the perceptions about weddings and photography? Well, you know, I, I think every industry has to do an evaluation to determine how true that is for them. Uh, for wedding photography, I would say, yeah, pretty much that's the case. I mean, every country that I've been to, it's usually been, you know, every country that I've been to, the brides place a very different type of importance on the wedding day. Than, and not that the husbands don't find it important. They just have it. It's important for different reasons to them. And... And so as a result, what the bride really wants that day, it's her day. It's her day to be the princess. It's her day to be, you know. And so as a result, she needs, uh, you know, that, that marketing, I think, will pretty much work in just about any, any culture, particularly as this sort of Western idea of, of marriage becomes more and more and more prolific. But when we think about multinationals and we think about larger companies, I mean, do they need a different approach in every market or for every market? I think so. I read once that Hostess Potato Chips, you know, the company that makes Hostess Potato Chips, that, they, that those potato chips actually taste different in different states in America because the tastes are different in those states. The same packet of chips, still called plain chips or salt and vinegar chips or what have you, is actually formulated to a slightly different palate in each of the countries, in each of the, in each of the states they're in. So yes, I think that if you really want to be good at marketing and you want to get the highest level of return on investment from your marketing, then yes, your marketing has to be tuned to the local market. If we go back uh, from what you started actually talking about, it was that you're not you're not taking or you're not picking the people who are already looking for the product available, but but maybe you're turning to the people who are not aware of it, who are not interested in it, and etc. How long is this trip? How long it takes to convince them if you're just uh, building up networks and and trying to. Uh, find another way to talk with them. When, when, get you, when do you get your money? Well, you know, I, 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 again, this is a, um, a question that's different depending on each campaign. I mean, some of them... Do you have any examples? Money. 
some of them turn into money much more quickly. Some of these campaigns can turn into money much more quickly. And I, I will, I'll give you a very good example of a, um, a client that I was working with in the, in the realm of accounting. And so this accountant, um, you know, what they were doing is they, you know, have various advertisements in different locations. And then clients would come and spend an hour to interviewing the accountant, reviewing their accounts, getting some feedback on their accounts. And then maybe a third or half of those people might become clients of, of the accountancy firm. Great. So then what we did is said, okay, now let's get strategic. Let's, let's develop an inceptive campaign. And what we began to realize is that when they spend that two hours with the prospect, they're actually giving the prospect quite a lot of value already. So we said, well, wait a minute now. What if we created a new campaign? And the new campaign said, look, I'm an accountant and I love accountancy. And I especially love doing accountancy for small business owners. And so what I've done is I've created a special introductory offer where I will spend two hours with you reviewing every aspect of your accounts, your current expenditures, your current bills, the way your taxes are structured. And over the course of that two hours, I will create for you a report that shows you how you're going to save like thousands of dollars on your accountancy fees over the next year and how you'll probably save a lot of money on taxes by doing some things smart today that you might not have done until the end of the year. And here's what I'll do. I'll do the whole session for $1,500, but I won't even charge you for the session unless you think it was absolutely worth your time. Now, here's what happens. Of course, people like the idea of this because there's no risk for them. They're like, you're going to spend two hours with me. You're going to help me go through all of my accounts. I don't even pay unless I'm completely happy. So people buy the service. But here's the other thing that happens. Because they've now transacted with the accountant, because they've now bought a service from them, it's actually much more easy for them to become a customer because they already think of this accountant as their accountant because they just spent money with them. So first thing that's happening is the accountant is making money sooner because they're selling a service that used to be a sales process for them. And secondly, they're increasing their closing average because they're turning those people into customers earlier in the process. It's interesting because in, in a way, what I was thinking as I'm dealing with PR almost 20 years now and, and, and the problem with my clients and, and mostly with the PR market is, is, is that actually that uh, it takes about half a year if you start from a zero, you have no reputation, you, you're starting to build your, your reputation, it takes about half a year of hard work and then finally people will start notice you and only then you can use this, uh, um, that, that, that people know you, you can use it in your sales and, and your sales are, are going slightly up. Uh, somehow what you are talking today, it's a different conception than a PR, what the example I brought. Well, you know, inception marketing works extremely well in PR. And in fact, I'm going to be back in Estonia um, quite soon. And, and I think it's in uh, September. And I'll be actually teaching in, in my talk. I'll be talking about one of the very powerful ways to create free and very powerful PR. And one of, the, one of the ways to do that is to recognize that one of the things we do in inception marketing is we take a look at who our target market is. And it's not always people that are buying from us. It's sometimes people that can help us sell. So, for example, in PR... Your target market is a reporter, editor, showrunner, producer, you know, whoever it is that's putting together the story, radio, television, media, or whatever the case may be. And so what we have to do if we're going to get noticed by them is we, we, won't, we don't want to be noticed. We want to grab their attention. You see, that's the, 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 the trouble quite often with marketing is that we design marketing so that we can be noticed. I don't want to be noticed. I want to grab your attention. So let me grab your attention. And, and here's, here's a, a perfect example of a way a friend of mine did this with selling a book. He wrote a book about influence. 
And he was getting ready to launch the book with some traditional advertising and marketing. He was going to buy lots of time on the radio and television in America. The problem was around the time that he was getting ready to publish, the American primary, the, 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 the American elections were taking place. And once that starts, you cannot buy space on the radio. It's just extremely difficult. And, and so the, the challenge, of course, is that now he's got this book and, and, and his main marketing idea is gone because he wanted to be on the radio and, and he can't afford to compete with all the uh, presidential you know, candidates. So then he starts thinking, wait a minute, let's get inceptive here. Let's, let's, let's think about what's going on. Well, what's the first step? The first step is to, is to decide what's most important to the target audience. Well, the target audience in this case is not the people buying the books. The target audience is the reporter, the producer, the editor, the showrunner. So what's important to them right now? Well, you know what's important to them? The election. That's the only thing that's important to them. And you'll notice that when news cycles are happening, they just repeat the same old news again and again and again. So they're constantly looking for a fresh angle on what's already interesting. And so what he did is he issued a single press release and the press release said, author on influence book predicts outcome of US presidential election. And all of a sudden every reporter and every press agent and every editor wanted him in for an interview and wanted and he got he was on every national and international uh, television and radio show he, he was turning them down he couldn't fill his calendar he, he had he was he was full and and he got um, he got millions of dollars of free PR for his book for free when he was actually going to be buying all that space on the radio how but did instead, the book go the book how did the elections well. go <laughs> Yeah, the book went really well, and he did. And, and here's the funny thing: he never even predicted the election. He just told people how you would predict an election, and that got him on every radio and every TV show for free. And and so it didn't have to take a long time at all. When you get strategic, when you get into the psychology of the people that you're trying to grab their attention of, it just becomes a lot easier. Do you have a good example of product product of or service or something that you yourself have bought? through the same process that we are talking today. So, so somebody has been strategically wise in their marketing and you have bought it finally. Yeah, you know, I, that, that kind of stuff. I mean, um, I, I, I'll have to give some thought to, an ex to a, a specific example. But I, in the meantime, let me give you a different version. Um, just to give you an example of, um, of how we've used it in one of our in one of our businesses and and from the other side uh, and that is that for years we've been um, taking some of our core clients on on an adventure trip where we take them up Kilimanjaro so we take them to Africa and we take them up Kilimanjaro and we do some leadership skills training and so on and we used to run webinars that talked about you know um, uh, you know find out more about our trip to Kilimanjaro but what we began to realize is, what, what, what if we changed the process? What if instead of that, we realized there were a lot of people who are already curious about Kilimanjaro or just adventurous people generally, and we ran new webinars. And the new webinar said, curious about Kilimanjaro? Avoid, you know, sorry, it was curious about Kilimanjaro? Here are five ways to make your trip more safe. And what ended up happening is, is that we, we got literally three times as many people signing up for those webinars. And so, of course, now we give them really good advice on the webinar. And then as a result of that really good advice on the webinar, they end, up, uh, um, you know, they end up wanting to know more about our program and joining our program. 
So what, what we aren't trying to do is sell them our program. What we're trying to do is teach them about the process. And as a result of that, creating so much credibility and authority with them that they end up wanting to come and do business with us. I, I'm trying to think of an example where somebody's used a really good campaign to attract me. And I, you know, I, I'm having a hard time with it because, frankly, most people are not using extremely strategic <laughs> and effective, uh, effective marketing. Please try for us, at least. <laughs> <laughs> no examples, yes? You know, let, let, let's carry on, and if one pops into my head, which yes, really well, I'll, you well, excellent, carry on. excellent, Eric. I want to ask, um, what is more challenging in your mind? Is it to teach people to understand the the inception marketing, or is it to make them implement it? Yeah, you know, it's to get them to implement it, and I'll, I'll, that's why quite often our clients will end up wanting to engage somebody from our team to come and help them with it. And one of the reasons is is that the the old habits of features and benefits selling, talking all about your product or service, those habits are really hard to change. It's the monkey trap. You know, you're you're holding on to what seems to be a strategy. You see, the thing is, look, I hate to, this is a silly example, but I'm, I'm just going to use this. This is really silly. But if a man walks down a, a busy street in some, you know, big, huge city, and he walks up to every woman he sees and asks her for sex, just says, will you have sex with me? You know what? I think eventually after a thousand women, he might meet one that says yes. Now, the problem is, is if the very first woman he asks says yes, and he, didn't, and, and he was just lucky, then he will start to believe that that's a good strategy, and he'll keep using it. <laughs> well, I think that's what happens with us with, with companies that are using features and benefits or old traditional marketing, is that it does occasionally work. And because it occasionally works, they think it's the best strategy. And so when we teach them inception marketing, they go, wow, that's really going to be good. And then one of the things that will happen is they'll often use part of inception marketing, like using a really good engagement pitch. And now they have all these extra prospects, and then they'll go back to their old model of selling. And, and, and they're still doing better than they were in the old days because they have more prospects, but they're not using the full magic of it because they haven't really figured out that if they use a really powerful inceptive story instead of a sales pitch, then they can close 50% instead of 5%. How do you work with the teams then? What do you do to make them change? Well, there's a couple of issues. One is really educating them as to why this works, showing them case studies of why it's worked, breaking the process down and involving them in developing it so that they really get some sense of ownership. And then, frankly, training them, you know, doing really, you know, new sales training, new marketing training, like really just educating and educating and educating. And, and then, and, and, um, and often it has to be done more than once. I've, I've worked with, with, even in one of my own companies, I taught all my salespeople this stuff and, 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 you know, I taught it to them and, and they were doing it and they were doing it. And then I went away for a few weeks. I came back and I walked into the sales room and guess what? They're back to the old sales pitch. <laughs> you know, I had to retrain again. And, and, you know, so sometimes it just takes some time to retrain, uh, um, to, to train and retrain people to stick with it. But here's the thing. Once they start hitting the major, major successes with it, they won't go back to the old ways. That's true. I want to take um, an example of, um, of a typical Estonian company. And we usually, from a show to show, talk about this area. It's about log houses or wooden houses. Estonia is, uh, is very good in producing and exporting log houses. Sometimes we are the fourth country in Europe. Even despite our small size, sometimes we are even on the first place, depending on the circumstances. And that's why we discuss a lot about the log houses um, in our shows as well. And the question is that, that, that imagine uh, that, uh, that there is a company producing log houses in Estonia and, for instance, exporting the houses to Canada. 
And yeah. and the question is, how should they, they use inception marketing? Well, okay. So let's let's go through this. You know, uh, let's go through this in, in a little bit. Some of the steps. Okay. So the first step is is it's not about the log houses. The first step is that it is about the target market. So. So, so the, first of all, the overall target market is Canada, all right? But that's too big. Not everybody in Canada is interested in log cabins, and not everybody will ever be interested. So that's too big. So now what we have to do is break that market up. So we could break it up into different socioeconomic groups. We can break it up. I don't know if you have an appreciation for how big Canada is as a country, but you could fit Estonia in there probably a hundred times. It's a big, big country. So we could break it up into different provinces. We could break it up into different towns within the provinces. So, but then the other thing is we could break it up into two other ways. We could break it up into the builders and the buyers. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, so the reason we might want to sub, sub, um, subsection these people is that by breaking them into these subsections, we're going to get a much better sense of, of, um, of, of how we can market to them. So, for example, if I, if I found a group of people... Let's say I decided to zero my marketing in on a little town called Kelowna in British Columbia. Matter of fact, let's say we went to the big white ski resort and we said to those people that we want to sell Estonian log cabins. What's really cool is they have a community there and the building code locally will only let them build log cabins. Isn't that interesting? So they, they, it's, it's to keep a particular look on that, you know, in that area. So now, if I wanted to appeal to the to the buyers in that area, one of the things that I might do is produce some really good educational content on log cabins. Not trying to sell my log cabins, but teaching them about the value of log cabins. What's great about them? What are some of the dangers they should know about? How does it affect property prices? You know, just some really good educational content, some really good educational videos. And so now, as somebody becomes curious about log cabins, they go, oh, I found this channel. These guys are just experts about log cabins. I learned everything I know about log cabins from these guys in Estonia. And then one day they go, oh, it turns out they make them and export them here to Canada. And so, you know, by getting involved in their decision process, we earn credibility and authority and we become much more likely to be the one that they want to buy from in the end. So, you know, that's a, a soft version. It's not super strategic, but it's a soft version that instead of walking in immediately trying to sell log cabins, instead what we're doing is saying, let's educate the, the market about the log cabins first. Now, on the other hand, if we were dealing with, um, say, like builders or, or importers or agents that we might want to rep that we or, or that we might want to work with in those countries, now or in that country, what we now might want to take a look at is what's most important to them at any given point in time, and 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 we might not know that until we do some really good market research. But let's imagine, for example, we did some market research and we found out that you know, well, how about this? Let's say it was a few years ago and we found out by doing some market research. The, that the local municipality was going to pass a bylaw that would mean that only log cabins could be sold in this one area. Well, wouldn't it be interesting if we, the Estonian log cabin manufacturer, could be the first one to tell all the agents in that area that this law is coming? Well, that, that, you can do that by, by, by conducting the right research. Now, if you're the one that told them that that law is coming, then you're the one that first educated them about the opportunity. And as a result, you're, you're inside. You're now having a conversation with them. You have rapport, you have credibility, and you have a great opportunity to turn that into a sales conversation. Very good. I do hope that all the log home producers can listen to the story and and learn from that. And and here is my last question, that um, you are one of the persons who have the, I don't know, is it luck or success coming up with your own theory? 
And and I just want to ask, what's behind, or how did you bring the things together and 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 put together something that you can call that this is the Inception Marketing, and I'm the man behind that. Sure. You know, uh, the 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 short version of that is is that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, I I I can't pretend that there's that everything that I'm doing is is original. What I it, what's original is the way I've put it together. And and really, what's happened is that over my life, I've been a businessman, I've been a salesperson, I, I've been in business pretty much my entire adult life, and as a result, I've real and I've taken it seriously. I mean, I've read countless books, and I've been to many marketing symposiums and seminars. I've studied the very best people, and and as a result of that, I've come up with some theories of what works and what doesn't work. And about two years ago, I was offered the opportunity to teach marketing at Anthony Robbins Business Mastery Programs all over the world. And and so what I now had to do is find a way to take something that I was good at doing and I had to find a way to teach it really well. And those are different things. Being able to do something and being able to teach something is a very different thing. And so I, I when I when I decided that I now needed to be able to teach it, I had to break the, I had to really examine my process and look at how do I do this for clients because I always thought it was a very custom process I was doing for each client. But as it turns out, it was really there was a process I was going through. There were steps. And so what I did is I broke those steps down into very specific steps and I found a way that I could teach it really effectively. So, you know, I've been influenced very heavily by people like Jay Abraham and, and Tony Robbins and, and Chet Holmes and, and many others. And, 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 you know, and as a result of the influence of all those people, I've come up with a model that is highly teachable and is highly effective in pretty much any, you know, in any marketing situation you could imagine. Eric, I really welcome you back to Estonia. I think that our companies have a lot to learn from you. And our next topic is coming from Euromonitor International, actually from their blog. And then this time they are telling us about the promising markets of China and India. And then this time, actually, we, we all know that the, those markets are growing, uh, especially if you compare to the Europe. But um, but uh, the, maybe the interesting part of this uh, is that that they are talking about accountants and auditors, the people who actually um, are earning much from uh, places, from uh, countries where regulations are all the time changing. It's a changing environment, so um, it's also logical. But um, when I was reading it and understanding it, that if you are accountant, uh, if you are a accountant company of your auditor company as, as a big five or, or whoever. So the market is huge. Probably if you want to grow, you might go there because you're going to grow there. But uh, maybe it's despite of the article that's talking about accountants and, and auditors, I think actually that there are many other professionals uh, and professions who, who can take uh, advantage of this uh, growth in uh, a changing environment, and then maybe even even the marketeers, maybe maybe even uh, the people who are teaching uh, new strategical views of marketing. So my question to you is actually, what can we learn of this growth uh, in those quickly, rapidly changing markets? What what is our lesson uh, in our businesses? I, I want to tell you, I, I want to, and, and, and I really hope your listeners, everybody in Estonia, every entrepreneur, business owner, Estonia, if you listen to nothing else I talked about on this interview, this is the one thing I want you to hear. There is a really exciting opportunity for entrepreneurship in Estonia happening right now. 
And, and the reason that that's happening is for the same reason that you're seeing these booming uh, professional services trade in Asia and so on, is that what happens is, is that economies mature and emerge in different, um, in different timescales in different places. And so if you really think about it, I mean, what was entrepreneurship called in Estonia before 1988? It was called criminal activity. You know, it was, it was not, it, it, entrepreneurship wasn't a thing there. And now entrepreneurship is a thing, you know, owning a business. And now, of course, many people in the older generation still regard entrepreneurship in, in Estonia as a little bit unethical, right? unethical, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little questionable or unethical. Now, what, why I'm mentioning this is that Estonia is now going through an entrepreneurial renaissance that countries like America and Canada and England have already gone through. And what that means is, is that there are lessons to be learned in those countries that could be applied in Estonia. And I'll give you a very good example of how I did this in one of my businesses. I started a company in England. Now, I don't know if you've had a chance to travel to England, and I don't know how it would compare with Estonia, but if you grew up in Canada and then you travel to England, you will find what I would call a customer service culture shock. The, the customer service in England when I arrived here over 10 years ago in England was atrocious. It was really bad, yeah, especially compared to what I'd experienced in Canada and America growing up. And so when I started my company, I started my company with some of the very basic ideas that I had about the way staff should be treated, the way employees should be treated, the way customers should be treated. And as a consequence, we did things very differently than the average English business. And it set us apart. Our clients came to love doing business with us because we were doing things differently than English businesses. Now, I didn't know what I was doing was any kind of great wisdom. I was only doing what I was brought up to do by growing up in a different culture. But the lesson that it taught me later is that if you can take the advanced ideas from one culture and bring it to an emerging culture, you have a tremendous opportunity. And so in entrepreneurship, in marketing, in sales, in customer service, in business in general, in Estonia, there are lessons to be learned from business owners in places like America, Canada, uh, even Asia, uh, you know, in, in, in South Africa, where entrepreneurship has been going on for a lot longer. And, and those principles can be brought to Estonia and cause your business people there to have a significant competitive advantage over the people who are not willing to learn from foreigners. And I, I just think that's the lesson to be learned from this observation you've made, and it's an exciting, exciting opportunity. And it's something I'm going to be talking a lot about when I come back to Estonia in September. Arnold. Very good. For me, the main comment is maybe I was just looking at it from a bit different, ang different angle, and my main comment or my main surprise here was that how well the local companies managed to compete with the international ones. And, and it helped me to realize how important, as they say here, is the understanding the different culture and uh, having all the connections in the markets, having the political ties and having the know-how, how to interpret it all the different changes what are happening in the legislations. This was something I didn't maybe thought it was so important but looking here that uh, the the big four are not the big four in these markets but some of them are just on the fifth or sixth place then the kind of cultural and political world can have such an impact on this issue was a kind of surprise for me and and was a thought-provoking issue it's somehow what i remember happened in estonia also some some companies that were not international get it got an advantage of uh, the circum circumstance because of knowing the culture. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it, absolutely, and becoming a gateway to somebody wanting to experience that market. But the other big advantage that you have in Estonia, and and I, th I think one of the challenges that American companies quite often have when they try to be international is that America is such a large population, such a strong economy that they don't really pay much attention to cultures other than their own. And so one of the advantages that a country like Estonia has is that by your very nature, I mean, you, you're, you, you, there, there's such a, a, a cross of different cultures that have had an influence on Estonia and, and you're, you're, you're forced by, by just the nature of having a lot of neighbors close to you to having a much wider cultural awareness. And I think that that does play a big role in some of the opportunity that's there to, to be developed. The, 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 the thing I'm talking about has a lot more to do with internal companies and the way they run internally. Like I, I won't name the hotel now because I, because in the end they, they, you know, they did take care of the situation, but I stayed at a hotel when I was in Tallinn and the customer service was really terrible. I mean, every step of the way bad. And, um, and, and, uh, you know, and I, because I, I, because I plan to come back, I'm always a big fan of trying to help and improve these things. So I had a long conversations with one of the managers there and pointed out some of these things, but you see, at the end of the day, they haven't really had to compete on, uh, on a global level from a customer service perspective. You know, it's tourist season, they're full anyway. What does it matter how good their service is until it's not tourist season anymore? And so that, those are the, I, I think on one level, I think you have a tremendous advantage because of, uh, well, there, I think there's three things to consider. There's a tremendous advantage because as a multinational or international company wants to come into Estonia, they won't have the local knowledge that, that local companies will have. And so those kind of joint venture partnerships are an exciting opportunity. I think also when it comes to Estonian companies that want to get involved in exportation of products and services, I think there's a general cultural awareness inside a country like Estonia that's not necessarily inside a country like England or America. And I think that's very valuable. And then lastly, this thing I've already mentioned of, you know, taking some basic business principles and, and recognizing that, hey, business is new as a, as, a, as a model of making money in this country. Why make all these mistakes ourselves when we can learn from the mistakes that other people have made? And, you know, go, go study people like Richard Branson and, and, and Steve Jobs and, and look at what they did in their markets that work and how can those same things apply in our market. The marketing that's appealed to me most um, in, the, in the last seven days is a, a video produced by Thai Life. Um, it's a life insurance company in Thailand. And they produced a, a video, of course, working very hard toward a, a, you know, they were obviously aiming to develop a viral campaign. And it's been very effective. As far as I know, they've had over 15 million views on YouTube and, and who knows how many on all the other platforms that the video is on. And, and, and I think the video is extremely well designed because what's happening in the video is, is that they're, they're doing something that's, that's I mean, market, if marketing doesn't appeal to your emotions, it's never going to work. And so the campaign they've de developed is very, very emotional. And it talks a lot about, um, uh, about uh, contributing and, and putting yourself in a situation where you can't contribute. Now, what's really fascinating about it is nowhere does the advertisement try to sell life insurance. The, the, what, what it's trying to do is sell some life lessons and, and engage emotions. And as a consequence, they're getting a tremendous amount of exposure. Um, I, I, I'm curious to see how their conversion is working from that process. But certainly at the front end, they've caught my attention. I think they've done a great job. Thank you. Arnold. I have a very different candidate, and I, I don't even know whom to give the award, but the story is as following. It was um, a couple of months ago when um, we had the story in media that um, on a small island that is called Kihno in Estonia, 
that is still has very great traditions preserved. It means that one of the tradition is that the ladies um, drive motorcycles wearing the national costumes. And the national costumes are beautiful. They have long striped skirt that are very colorful, but they never use helmets because they think the helmets are ugly. That's true, by the way. And that has been there for, for the years. They have never used helmets. And uh, then it, uh, someone uh, saw them in a TV that there was a lady without helmet driving a motorcycle, and it was brought to Estonian media. And then there was, there was an artist or someone to came to, who, who came to a very bright idea in my mind. And the idea was as following. They took helmets and tried to design the helmets to be suited to the island's national costumes. They colored it striped or put a different uh, kind of uh, pattern on the helmets and they really look great. And the result was, uh, was, um, was very good. The result was, for the first, the ladies loved the helmets. They thought that they are really going to wear it. And for the first time of the life, they really put the helmets on and understood it's not only secure but it's own, it's, and, and not only beautiful, but it's also warm. And it might be a good thing when you, when you have to drive there on the Windy Island. But for the third, it was interesting that Estonian, I think it was Estonian police, who noticed the artist and gave them a award uh, for designing the helmets that were so popular. And for the fourth, they even now think about that the ladies in the island might use the, might use the winter time to paint the helmets in order to sell them in the wider area. So I think that if I put all things together and think that how such a thing that a helmet can made be, be, become popular in not probably only in that small island, but I do hope that we are going to see the beautifully colored helmets in Estonia in the roads when, uh, when uh, people drive motorcycles. So this is my story. Yeah, that's very interesting. Nice one. I don't have such a good ideas uh, stories, but I have a small one. Uh, this um, this week uh, there was open uh, first ice bar in in Estonia, and it's a small one, not a huge, but it's in an old old town, Viru, uh, Viru Street, and and uh, it's it's always have this minus six degrees uh, below zero. And, and uh, of course, it's for tourists. Uh, most of the uh, Russians will come in. They, they, they make money in easy way. You, you have to pay it you know, 10 euros and then you, you get uh, two vodka shots for that uh, money. And then it's cold already. You can move, um, <laughs> move on. But, um, but uh, of course, we, we have such a places in the different places of the world. So this is not so unique. But, but uh, I, I love the idea behind it. Uh, that actually behind the these are the owners of the vodka brand Moe Moe's Moe vodka, and and they have calculated and and try to find out the way how to promote their vodka. They have been in a trouble to promoting its local Estonian brand Moe vodka. So so this is this is uh, what's behind that. So now it's their first I would say a nice promotion activity for tourists because everybody now who will come and enter to this place will know about something more about Estonian Moe vodka.
I like that a lot. And, and I think I'll, if I can add one more, because I think something that we, we forget is that, you know, sometimes it's marketing is not about getting new customers. It's about um, it's about it's not about getting new customers. It's about, uh, you know, dealing with existing customers, getting existing customers to buy more often and all that sort of thing. And, um, and so I was told this story today, which really, I love it. I mean, I'm a big fan of Richard Branson's and I have been forever. And, and I, I, um, I heard this story today that they, they created a, a, um, a situation where if you were calling in to customer service with a complaint or something, um, Richard's voice himself recorded this message. So it would be, hi, this is Richard Branson. And it would say, I'm here to handle your customer service problem. And if somebody does not answer your call within 20 seconds, your next flight is free. 19. 18, 17. <laughs> and, and, and of course, most of the time, somebody picks up the call before the 20 seconds. But what it means for the customer is, is that every call is like a lottery. It, it, it encourages the clients to call in with their complaints. That's the only way a company can ever learn. It also has the client sitting there going, I hope they don't answer. I hope they don't answer. <laughs> Where every other company has gone, when are they going to answer? When are they going to answer? So I think that that is probably one of the most novel, <laughs> most interesting little marketing tricks I've heard about in a very long time. Nice one. So, which one we choose? Who will get the award? Eric. What would uh, be you your know, choice? Out of those four. <laughs> the guests are usually the first you know, one, I, didn't we tell you? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I, I think that here's what I'd say. I, I, I'd say I, I, feel like I, I feel like the Branson one to me is so unique and so interesting that I would have to give it, I'd have to give it to Branson, except for one thing that getting people to wear helmets is so socially responsible that I'm, I'm torn. And I feel like that's <laughs> such a good campaign because it's got this social responsibility issue. So hang on a minute. I'm going to find a coin. I'm flipping a coin in this pocket. Hold on. Here it is. Okay. So you have to tell me heads, heads, heads for, you call it heads for Branson or, or no, you call it which way heads you want. Heads for helmet. Heads for helmet. Good idea. That's well done. All right, here we go. And it's, uh, Tails, it's Mr. Branson. Mr. Branson wins it today. Yes, okay. I agree. Wrong. I agree. And uh, <laughs> Mr. Branson from my side also, because I noticed those helmets. I love those helmets. I love those those people on Kihno Island. But um, I would love to give to Mr. Branson our award. He has not got any yet. <laughs> I yeah. will give my vote to the island still, but as a 2-1. So, Mr. Branson... We are retailers of fabric and uh, sewing accessories. Uh, during the recession, the only way for us to survive was by deep discounts. Minus 50 and minus 70 discounts were the usual in our business to drive traffic to our outlets. The problem is that we cannot come out from the discounting cycle and find other ways besides discounts to, be, uh, to get people into our stores. What do you suggest? Well, okay. So there was a book written some years ago called Blue Ocean Strategy. And in Blue Ocean Strategy really uh, discussed a, a, a metaphor. And the metaphor was that, you know, that, that most people are trying to compete in, in the red blood churned competitive parts of the ocean where there's small numbers of fish and everybody's trying to go fishing for them. And, and in this book, they suggested that there are also these wide open blue oceans with no competition in them. 
And, and I think what you can recognize is that's really what I've been talking about. You see, inception marketing is really like blue ocean strategies for the rest of us. It's, it's a, it, 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 what, what it means is developing marketing campaigns that expose our message to a wider number of people so that we're not always having to compete on price. You see, when I'm standing in front of an audience, I'll often ask the audience, like, how many people are getting ready to buy a new computer? And how many people are getting ready to buy a new phone? How many people are getting ready to buy a new car? And no matter what I ask, it's always about 2 3 4% of the audience every time. That's who the market is. And so when, when you have a client like that who's competing on price, that's because their marketing is designed to attract people who are already buying, the 2 or 3%. The problem is if they're already buying, then they're price comparing. And so as a consequence, you're going to have to lower your price to get them because now everybody's competing for that small, tiny sliver of the market. When we use inceptive campaigns, what we're doing, remember what we did before, instead of it being 100 people that stayed for the presentation, it's 500 people. Well, remember something else about those 500 people. They weren't already buying. So they're not talking to all your competitors. So they're not as price sensitive. And so what I would suggest to a company in that situation is they need to start getting strategic about who it is that they're attracting to their store. Instead of being lazy and designing ads and marketing campaigns that are all about their products and services and all about their store and all about how great they are, those ads are only ever going to appeal to the people who are already looking to buy. And what we're saying is we want to appeal to people long before they want to buy and, and start developing that relationship with them in advance so that they are not so price sensitive when they finally do show up in our store. What else could I add? It sounds so, uh, so good. Yes, um, my suggestion is that, uh, of course, it's difficult to throw away all those uh, discounts uh, right away, but you, you have to start moving ahead. So if you are giving it uh, half of a year, those uh, great discounts, then you have to, first of all, give it to a smaller amount of uh, products and, and then you have to pick some kind of target segments you might want to give. And then finally, you, you, as, as you told, you have to move to the new niches, to the new people, as you say, this blue ocean, I absolutely yeah. agree, uh, who are not buying from you, who are not buying those textiles at all because they, they go to, uh, to the shop and, and buying uh, the garments from there. But if you go to them and teach them that, oh, there is a new ways to, to do it, uh, then you might find another client and, and maybe they can buy the, it from 150%. That's a really good example. Here, here, I'm not saying this would work, but just off the top of my head. You have a choice. You're trying to sell fabrics to people. Great. But you've decided that you're, you're always having to discount the price and what have you. So what, what would happen if, let's say you went and got a really good designer who was a good teacher, and you run a big workshop, and you do it for charity. You say it's limited to 100 people, and you come to this workshop, and we're going to show you how you can make designer quality clothes yourself. And we're gonna, we have a designer who's gonna come and teach you how to do that. And so you run it, you run some marketing to get people to come to your workshop. You're, you're raising money for, some, for, for a charity. For every item of clothes that you make, um, one item of clothing is gonna get donated to, you know, you do something that's got some social impact and social responsibility. Now, 100 people show up for the workshop. They learn how to make new clothes. Now they need to buy fabrics. But you see, they're not already fabric buyers, so they're not so price sensitive. I mean, in that moment, you've converted a client. And because you're the one who taught them, because you're the one who provided this service, they're always going to be more inclined to want to buy from you than from somebody else.
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I do agree with all the thoughts. I was just thinking that uh, what else could I what else could I add to your thoughts what uh, what you told? Probably there is also if you're trying to segment the market a bit further, then there is always a group of people that you can call that they are kind of the um the fashion designers wanna be or something the people who think that they are as good as fashion designers who like like to design the clothes for themselves for their friends uh, for the family and that who always need new fabrics in order to put their ideas into into some kind of uh, creations or or to make clothes out of, out of it so probably maybe even uh, trying to cooperate or or work together uh, with uh, with a kind of fashion design school or uh, or a group of people or incubators where the, where the small fashion designers are might help also to raise the profile so that people understand that this is the fabric that the designers use so it might exactly. might help to to uh, change the perception from the price to the value of the fabric and to really say that okay this is the value apple fabric and if you want to buy it minus 70 it's not possible because designers use it yeah you know again now you're you're i mean i think that's good thinking it's just still about selling and and one of the things that's really key here is that when you take, you know, let's say you, you, let's say you look at the market. Ten percent are already buying. That means they're shopping, they're checking on Google, they're looking at your competitors, and they know what the pricing is. So if, they, if you don't discount, they're just going to go buy from somebody else. But when you do a campaign that gets people um, to buy for their very first time, those people were not already shopping. So they're not comparing you against your competitors. They're not, they're, they, they have a different price expectation. It's when you're taking non-buyers and turning them into buyers. If you think about the, uh, the iPad, when the iPad came out, I mean, there was no market for that iPad. It didn't exist. They, 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 it wasn't competing with anything. They just came out and identified a product, identified that they, they, that they were going to create the market for that product. And so nobody, was, nobody cared how much an iPad cost. I mean, people were spending as much for an iPad as a computer costs when they came out. And of course, you know, they, they weren't having to compete on price because they did that. And to this day, that works for them with their computers. They, their computers are, cr create such a high value proposition for them that a Mac costs infinitely more than a PC does. That's a combination of creating, creating their own market and then also what you've just described, and that is really being clear about what your price is and differentiating and saying, look, this is the price. It, it, it's this way because it's this valuable. And I just probably would think also about um, uh, differentiation in product and think that maybe it's possible not to sell only fabric, but to sell the fabric that is already cut somehow based on the... Um, Based on the model, maybe you can sell or to add some kind of accessories to the to the to the package, and you really sell something that this is going to be a beautiful coat that looks sure. like that, almost for your size. You can size it. Maybe the size might uh, might be different by I don't know a couple, two or three sizes, but you can make almost almost make a beautiful coat by yourself without doing any kind of the boring yeah. tasks, and it takes much easier, it's much faster, and you know that it's a real, uh, maybe even designed by a fashion designer, who knows, and it's sure. going to be a really good piece. Yeah, there, there, there's a, two other things that just come to mind, like one of them is this, that you could, um, for example, uh, are you familiar with Crocs? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are. Yeah. So, so what happened with Crocs, which I, I've never understood. I, I mean, I think they're 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 kind of silly and fun and what have you. But, but here, then all of a sudden, uh, a woman designed a little like toy that she could attach through the hole of the Crocs yeah. and put it yeah. on the kids' shoes. And and I mean, you know the story, right? She yeah, turned this into a multi multi million dollar business that I think she ended up selling to Crocs. So that idea that you're coming up with around, hey, saying what are the additional accessories or what are the other things that I could sell to these clients, I think that's really valuable. Here's the other thing. What if you created some kind of you know, um, real loyalty program with your top clients and maybe that means that when a new fabric comes along, like I can tell you, I'm a guy who does buy fabric. I, I have most of my shirts made. For, I like having my shirts made. So I pick out the fabrics myself and then I have them made. And, and so when I do that... Um, um, I, I'm always looking for like novel textures and novel, novel uh, patterns and what have you. And so w- what I think might be interesting for, for a fabric company is to identify the clients that are like that. And then when a new, a new fabric comes with a new texture or a new weight or a new pattern, what they do is they take a small swath of that and, e- or, and, and, and email – or not email it. I was going to say email it. But, but mail it, physically mail it to that very small select group of top clients and say, hey, listen – this is not yet available to our general clients, but it is available to you. Well, we know what's interesting about that. You're not going to discount something if you haven't even made it available to your other clients. <laughs> Nobody's going to expect you to. It's a premium. You're getting it front-of-the-line access. And so there's a, there are some services like that that you could offer that would make it even more high value. Thank you a lot. I think there were a lot of good and uh, interesting ideas, and Hundreds I really hope ideas. that uh, that take the hard part and implement at least something of that, so you will see the results also. But uh, thank you all for the show today, dear listeners. Please listen listen us again in a week's time. Meanwhile, please send us good cases. We like really to discuss and solve them to our email mi at mi or you might even call to our uh, marketing institute. We will write down your case and bring it to the brilliant guests in the next show. Absolutely. Thank you a lot. Sulle meeldis Turundusraadio. Teili endale meelde tuletus järgmiste saadete kohta Marketingi instituudi kodulehelt.